You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. With your Bibles before you, let's bow in prayer before we begin. Our great God, you are incomprehensibly great and awesome. You are more than we can understand fully. Your nature, your being are infinite in every way. And you are truly darkness to the intellect, but sunshine to our hearts. And we worship that which we adore, and we adore that which we do not fully comprehend. And so we ask today that as we begin to discuss things pertaining to your nature and your being, that you would give us clarity of thought, that you would help the frail words that are spoken here to illuminate you and shine glory and shine understanding upon Christ, and that you would reveal yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. Help us to appreciate you and to think rightly about who you are and what you have done for us, that you might be glorified here in the hearts of your people, in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, last week we finished John chapter 8, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, oh good, John chapter 9 is next, and you can tell by how I'm doing this that it was obviously a woman who did this, and she said, uh, John chapter 9 is next, and I can't wait because John chapter 9 is one of my favorite chapters and contains one of my favorite stories in all of the gospel of John, if not all of scripture, and I said that's exactly how I feel too. I can't wait for John 9 as well, but we're not going to start that today because our minds today are given to the thoughts on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we have studied that Jesus is the I am in John 8. Before we move on to John chapter 9, since it is the Christmas season, the month of December, and our minds are thinking about issues regarding the fact that Jesus was born a man, I thought it would be a good opportunity, having studied his divinity from all of John chapter 8, and the necessity that that has to our salvation, that we should then take a couple of moments and step over and talk about the humanity of Jesus. And what are the implications of his humanity? How are we to understand our Savior who is both God and man? We don't want to compromise either of those two essential doctrines, his deity or his humanity. And so we're going to take a few weeks here in the, in the course of December to give some thought to the humanity of Christ and the different expressions and the different ways in which we see Jesus revealed to us in Scripture as a man, as fully man. We refer to this as the incarnation. Incarnation is actually an English word that comes from a Latin word, incarnatio. Incarnatio means to take flesh or to become flesh or to enter into something. And it's sort of theological shorthand for John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what the incarnation refers to. The Word, who is the eternal God, the eternal Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. So now the question is, what do we mean when we talk about the Word becoming flesh? How did this happen? And why did this happen? Why was it necessary? And what does it mean for the divinity of Christ that we have Him both God and man? If He is fully man, does that in some way diminish His deity? If He is fully God, does it somehow compromise His humanity? So that's what we're going to be thinking about here over the course of the next few weeks. And we're going to look at, I have four messages before uh, before Christmas this year. So we're going to look at four expressions of his humanity or four experiences of Christ's humanity, if you were. And they, these all begin with S and not because I was trying to, but it just happened to work out that way. Today we're going to look at unto us is born a son. We're going to look at Jesus being a son. He's the son of Mary, son of Abraham, 
son of David. Unto us is born a son. Next week, we're going to see that unto us is born a sovereign. So then we look at the kingly, the kingly aspect of Jesus' life and ministry, that he was born the king of kings, he was born the son of David, he was born to reign and to rule, and he will, and we're going to see how the humanity is tied to that. And then on the Sunday prior to Christmas, unto us is born a sacrifice, and we're going to see how the humanity of Christ is related to the sacrifice that he gave. And then on Christmas Eve, we will talk about unto us is born a savior. Unto us is born a son, a sovereign, a sacrifice, and a savior. And you can see how his humanity is connected to all of those. If he is born a son, then he is the son of Mary, the son of David, a son, a real human being. That's what we're going to see today. As a sovereign, as one who was born a king, he must also be man in order to rule. As God, he could rule because God rules everything. He rules the nations. He's sovereign. We don't dispute that. But there is some element of Christ's humanity which uniquely fits him to rule and to reign over us, which he will do for all of eternity. And then obviously he had to be a man in order to die, a sacrificial atoning death, death in the place of men. And then he had to be a man in order to be our Savior. So those, that's the humanity as a son, as a sovereign, as our sacrifice, and then as a Savior. And that's where we're going over the next few weeks. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 7, because here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back into a few Old Testament texts, and we're going to see some Old Testament passages that sort of map out this humanity of Jesus for us. So Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verse 14. This is a familiar verse. This is something you're probably going to get 100 Christmas cards this year, and probably 50 of them will have this verse on them, and the other 50 will have Isaiah 9 verse 6 on them. Isaiah verse chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now that is quoted by Matthew in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Matthew says, after describing the virgin conception of the Lord Jesus in the womb of Mary, Matthew says, all of this took place to fulfill which was, that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and then Matthew quotes this passage, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he will be God with us, or he will be Emmanuel. So you can see there the element of Jesus' humanity. He was born of a virgin. He was born into time. He was born as a, as a not a normal, but he was born in a normal way through a normal childbirth process in the, the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now you might be saying to yourself, Jim, are you going to spend 35 minutes telling us that Jesus was born a son? The answer is no. It's probably going to be closer to 50 because we have to be very precise about what we mean when we speak of the humanity of Jesus and how this relates to his deity. So we are going to look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And this is a kind of a unique passage because if you, if you have a Jewish friend, particularly one who is schooled in some Orthodox theology, and you open up the prophet Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 to him, and you say, see, here is proof that Jesus was the Messiah. And you read Isaiah 7.14, your Jewish friend will point to the context of Isaiah 7.14, and he will say, see, you can see from the context that this was not predicting a Messiah, but this was predicting something that would happen during the lifetime of Isaiah. And then, more than likely, you're not going to have anywhere to go with that except to the New Testament book of Matthew, and that your Jewish friend rejects that. So, we want to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, and we're going to understand its context a little bit. Before we dive in here, let me set this up by giving you a little bit of history in fact, that's not just a little bit of history. We're going to go all the way back to the very beginning in the, in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, the very first mention of a Savior and a Redeemer that was coming, Genesis 3.15. This promise was given to, it is a promise of a virgin birth, by the way, and that's why I'm mentioning this. This promise was given to Adam and Eve um, in the garden, and it was actually pronounced as part of the curse upon the serpent. 
So when God cursed the serpent, he said to the serpent, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, that is hostility, or there will be war, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And that was a prophecy spoken in the midst of judgment. That is hope. That is a message of hope. And that was a prediction that God was going to set right this wrong that had been done in the garden. All of humanity had been plunged into sin by Adam's act and by Eve's act and by the deception of the serpent. And so in the midst of pronouncing judgment upon the, all of creation and upon the serpent, and in the, in the context of pronouncing judgment upon both the man and the woman, there is this statement of hope. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, and you shall bruise his heel and he will crush your head. Now that is a prediction of the coming Messiah who is there in Genesis 3.15. is called the seed of the woman. And here's what's unique about that. This is the only place in all of Scripture where you read that phrase, the seed of the woman, or the woman's seed. Because see, in normal relations, it's not the woman who has the seed, it's the man who has the seed. So you will read of the seed of David, or the seed of Jacob, or the seed of Isaac, or the seed of Abraham, but never the seed of the woman. This is the only place where we read of the seed of the woman. In what way is God, what does God mean when he says to the woman that she will have a seed? That's very unique. Because what we're seeing here in a very mysterious and unclear way, which will later be clarified, was that this one who was coming, who was the Messiah, would be a descendant of the woman. He would be born of the woman, but not by a man's seed. This is a very cryptic and very ancient way of describing a virgin birth. And Adam and Eve would have had to scratch their head and said, seed of the woman. See, that we don't understand. How is that going to happen? Seed of the woman. How could it be the seed of the woman? They wouldn't have understood this. But then... Thousands of years later, we have the prophet Isaiah describing exactly how this was going to happen. Ah, it's a virgin conception. That's how the Messiah can be born of a woman without any connection at all physically to the man. The Messiah would be a descendant of the woman, but not a descendant of Adam. And so it was the woman's seed. By a supernatural, miraculous act of conception by the Holy Spirit, the seed was created in the woman. A human nature was created. A baby was conceived there apart from the man. So he is the seed of the woman, but not the seed of the man. 2,000 years later, or almost 2,000 years later, that promise was clarified, and we find out that it was Eve's descendant, but Eve's descendant through not just anybody, but Abraham, because the promise was given then to Abraham. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Which one of those two sons would be the one through whom the Messiah would come? We find out that Isaac is the son of promise. Well, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Which one of those two sons would be the the head of that descendant, the, that race that would bring the Messiah. Well, it wouldn't be Esau, it would be Jacob. Jacob was the one to whom that covenant was given. And then after Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. Which one of those 12 sons would be the head of the Messiah's line? We find out that it wasn't any of the 12 sons except Judah in Genesis 49. I think it's verse 10 where the promise is given by Jacob to Judah that in his tribe, the, the, the scepter, the rule and reign would not depart from Judah forever. So we find out that it was going to be through Judah. Well, which one of Judah's descendants? Years later, we find out that it was David. It was David's descendant. David was given a covenant by God. God made a covenant with David and said, I will take one of your sons and I will seat him upon your throne and he will bear your rule and he will reign forever and ever everlastingly. So it would be a son of David. And then later on we find out that both Joseph and Mary were of David. And so when Mary conceived and bore a son, he was Jesus, the son of Mary, the son of David, the son of Judah, the son of Jake, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, all the way back. And Luke says to Adam and Eve. That's how it would come to pass. So the Genesis 3.15 promise that this would be for the seed of the woman is in a very mysterious and cryptic way, a description of a virgin birth. But then we have this brought to full light in Genesis chapter 7, verse 14, 
which is our text for this morning, and we're going to look at the context, really, the context of this, because the context goes all the way back up to the beginning of chapter 7. So you'll, you'll, find, you'll find Isaiah 7.14 printed on your Christmas cards, but you're likely not going to find verse 1 printed on your Christmas card. Now, it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, the Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. You didn't get that on your Christmas card, did you? But that's part of the context in which the whole promise of a virgin birth comes. Now, here's what's interesting about Isaiah 7, verse 14. Jews who reject Jesus and his claims to be the Messiah will point to the entire context of Isaiah chapter 7 to show you that Isaiah 7.14 does not refer to a virgin birth of a Messiah. In fact, they would argue it's not describing the Messiah at all. But Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, says this verse is fulfilled by Jesus and the birth of the Messiah. So we want to understand what the context is, and then we'll pull out of this, obviously, the humanity And then I'm going to finish today by describing to you how the humanity and the deity of Jesus go together and how we describe this one person who is two natures. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, or sorry, 7 verse 1. This is where we're going to begin and we're going to, obviously this is going to be fast. We're going to go through verses 1 all the way through the end of verse 16. I'm going to set up the context so you can see what this sign was, what this promise was, and how and why it was given. So we have Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and we're told in verse 1 that Ahaz was the son of Jotham, who was the son of Uzziah. Uzziah sounds familiar to you because in chapter 6, verse 1, it says that in the year the king Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in his temple, and the glory of his robe filled the temple, and that was Isaiah's vision of God when Isaiah was commissioned to be a prophet for God. That was in the year that king Uzziah died. Now Uzziah was a righteous and good king, and he reigned for 52 years. 52 years, and he was a good king, a godly king. You can read about Uzziah's reign and his undoing in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. When Uzziah died, he had a son who was 24 years old, and his son was Jotham. Jotham was a good and righteous king, a godly king. In fact, 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and 37 says that Jotham ordered his steps according to the Lord his God. So he was a righteous and a good king. Jotham had a son, and his son's name was Ahaz. Ahaz was not righteous. He was an unrighteous and a wicked king. In fact, Ahaz was to his father Jotham what Ronald Reagan Jr. is to Ronald Reagan, a testament to the limitations of human DNA. He was not his father. That's what we would say. He was so unlike his father. He was unrighteous. He was wicked. He was an idolater. Listen to Second Chronicles 28 describe Ahaz. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do right in the sight of the Lord, as David his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He also made molten images for the Baals. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and burned his sons in fire, child sacrifice to the false gods. They offered up their children as a sacrifice and burned them alive to appease the gods. This is what Ahaz was involved in. Burned his sons in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places on the hills, and under every green tree. That was Ahaz. Now Ahaz was a wicked man, and because of his wickedness and his sin, God sent against him a military force. And the military force was a a coalition of the northern tribe. Remember, the nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Ahaz is king over the southern kingdom. He reigns in Jerusalem over Judah. The northern kingdom, their king, was the Pekaliah of Pekah, mentioned in verse 1, who was the son of Remaliah. He had joined forces with the king of 
Aram. And those two had come against Judah. And Second Chronicles said they went out through the countryside and they were encamped in the nation of Israel and they were plundering and they were conquering and they were doing all of this. And finally word came to Ahaz in Judah that this force, the northern kingdom and the king of Aram, were coming together against him and they were plotting his destruction. So look at verse 2. Sorry, verse 1, they went up, this is the end of it, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, an indication that what is in view in this chapter is not just Ahaz, but something greater, it is the house of David. So in view in chapter 7 is not just one king, it is a king and a covenant made with an entire kingly line. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. So Ahaz was terrified at the thought of this. Now Ahaz had made an alliance with Syria, different nation, made an alliance with Syria, or Assyria actually. No, Syria, not Assyria. Assyria and Syria are different. Ahaz had made an alliance with Syria to deliver him, and he was trusting in that alliance. But he wasn't trusting in the Lord his God. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go up now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Jashub at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. That's a great name for a kid, by the way. If you just had a kid or if you're wanting to name a kid, you can always go to the Bible and find good names for your children. Shir Jashub. You and your son, Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. Now, that's the location that Isaiah met Ahaz to confront him and to give him this message. Now, why the upper field? Why is that significant? There was a conduit up there. There was a pool up there. This was likely something that fed the water to the entire city. And so Ahaz, knowing that he was about ready to be conquered or at least attacked by the northern kingdom and this alliance, military alliance of these two kings, is probably trying to secure some sort of water into the city, trying to make sure that the conduit is working or whatever. He's up there working on that. And Isaiah goes up with his son, Sheir Jashub, to speak to King Ahaz and to give him a message. And look at the message. Say to him, verse 4, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. And that's God's perspective on these two kings, just firebrands. Like two smoldering sticks that you pull out of a fire. They, they were once fire and burning and they were hot and they were a threat of some sort, but now they're just like two sticks with black ends and they're just smoldering. This is how God views these two kings. What seemed to Ahaz to be a fierce, fiery alliance is nothing but a couple of smoldering sticks. And smoldering sticks are easy to put out, right? With your foot or even with your hand or a little douse of water, you can extinguish them rather easily. That's how God describes these two men, two smoldering firebrands. Because, verse 5, because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you. Now here was their plan, this two, these two northern kingdoms. Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Who was Tabil? Nobody has any idea who Tabil was. It was obviously some hand-picked king that the, that the, the king of Israel and the king of Aram had chosen. They were going to go down, attack the southern kingdom, divide it up, put their own king in place. Each of them take half of the kingdom from themselves. This was their idea. They were going to basically squash the line of David his kingly line, they were going to squash that and put their own king in place in the southern kingdom. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, it shall not, uh, sorry, it shall not stand, says the Lord, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Verse 8. For the head of Aram, this is God's promise, this is not going to happen. This is what they said they're going to do, but this is not going to happen, and here's why. Verse 8. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, so that it is no longer a people. 
And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. Now, what does that mean? Now, the first one is a, it's a nation that he's describing. What is the capital city of Aram? It's Damascus. Who rules in Damascus? Opeka, the, the son of this man. This is his kingdom. All right, so that's Aram. How about, Ephra- how about Ephraim? What's the head city of Ephraim, the northern kingdom? It was, it was Samaria. And who rules in Samaria? Verse 9, the son of Remaliah. Here's what God's saying. This is not going to happen because I am the one who appoints kings over different areas. And right now, the king over Damascus in Aram is this king. The king over Ephraim and over Samaria is the son of Remaliah. These are the two kings. Those are those regions. You are king in Judah. I am the one who determines whose boundaries are expanded and whose boundaries are contracted. And these men are given their habitations over which they rule. I am sovereign over that. They are not going to expand their territory. They are not going to take over Judah because I am the one who determines that. Do you catch that? Now look at verse 9. Ahaz is challenged to believe this. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. So although God was going to deliver the nation, not for Ahaz's sake, because Ahaz was a wicked man, but for the sake of David his servant, though God was going to deliver the nation, Ahaz himself would perish, and he would not be blessed if he did not believe this promise. Then look at the challenge of verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Ask me to do a miracle to confirm what it is that I have just promised you. I want you to believe this. If you don't believe it, you're going to perish. So go ahead and ask me a sign. Ask of any miracle. Make it as big as you want or as small as you want. As wide as you want, as enormous as you want. Ask me anything. I'll do any sign. That's kind of a unique promise, isn't it? Has God ever done that before? Not very often did God ever do that. Challenge somebody to believe and then say, Ask of me any miracle and I will perform it as a sign to you that what I'm saying is true. Then look at verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now that statement was rude, and it was a statement of unbelief. Now he sounds real pious, right? I don't want to test God. Well, listen, if God says ask for a sign, and he tells you to ask for a sign, and you refuse to ask for a sign, it's not testing God to ask for a sign when he says ask for a sign. Why didn't Ahaz want to ask for a sign? Ahaz didn't want to see a miracle to demonstrate that God's word is true. Why was that? Because for however many years during the whole reign of Jotham and all of Ahaz's reign, Isaiah had been a prophet. All the way back in the year that King Uzziah died, God raised up Isaiah as a prophet, and he had been prophesying about the nation, about their wickedness and their iniquity and the coming judgment. And now Isaiah is standing before Ahaz, and if Isaiah performs a miracle, or if God does a miraculous work in his presence to demonstrate that what Isaiah has said is true and that Isaiah is a spokesman for God, what does that say to Ahaz? He doesn't want to see any proof that that Yahweh is the God of Israel. He doesn't want to see any proof of his idolatry, his apostasy, and his wickedness in his presence. I'm not going to ask for a sign. He doesn't want to believe God's promise. He's trusting in Assyria to deliver him. He's not interested, or Syria, he's not interested in, in, in receiving any proof that Isaiah is a spokesman for God and that God's word through Isaiah is true. That is the heart of an unbelief. That is the heart of unbelief. Not only does he not believe, he doesn't even want a reason to believe. He doesn't even want to be tempted to believe. Just keep the proof away. I don't want to see it. I want to remain in my unbelief. Sounds real pious. I don't want to test God. I don't want to test God. Well, that's just unrighteousness and wickedness at its heart. Look at verse 13. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you'll try the patience of my God as well? Is is trying men not enough for you that you're going to test or try God? 
Ahaz said he didn't want to test God, didn't want to try God. In reality, his unbelief and his not willingness, his unwillingness to ask for a sign was trying the patience of God. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You refuse to ask for a sign. Okay, Ahaz, the Lord is going to choose the sign, and here it is. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now from reading that, to whom does it sound like the sign is given? Ahaz, right? Jesus wasn't born for 500 years after Ahaz lived. So how is the birth of Jesus in the womb, the conception of Jesus in the womb of a virgin? How is a virgin birth 500 years later a sign to Ahaz? This sounds, does it not, as if whatever fulfills this promise should have been something that took place in Ahaz's day as proof of what Isaiah had said. Isn't that how it sounds? That's how an Orthodox Jew would argue that this does not apply to the Messiah. Look at verse 15 and 16 because it gets even more complicated. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So God is saying that this one who is going to be born of this virgin before he is basically two years old, that was the age at which they considered children able, old enough to refuse evil and to choose good. Before this child is even two years old, the kings of these two lands, the lands of these two kings whom you dread will be forsaken. So this boy or this child who was born to this virgin in verse 14, it seems, is going to be about two years old when the time that these two kings will be overthrown by God and God will deliver his people. So is verse 14 talking of the Messiah 500 years later, or is verse 14 talking about somebody in Ahaz's day? Notice the reference in verse 15 to eating curds and honey. That was a way of describing national distress. If you wanted to describe national prosperity, he would have been eating wheat or bread and drinking wine. But that's not what that would describe. A time of national distress would be described as eating curds and honey. Why curds and honey? Because if you had lots of curds in an area in which there was no refrigeration, it means you had a lot of milk. And if you had a lot of milk from your cattle, it was because the cattle, the calves that were being born to the cattle were dying. And so you had plenty of milk, and that milk would be turned into curds. Curds would be abundant. And if you had lots of honey, it was because there were wild flowers growing out in the fields where there should have been crops growing. So if you had an abundance of curds and honey, you were living in a land in which all of the cattle were dying, and out in the fields were not crops that you could turn into bread, but wild flowers that were producing lots of honey. So this child will be born during a time of national distress, and before he's two years old, the kings of these two lands will be forsaken. Now you say, that is real curious. Why would Matthew choose that passage to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ? There are three ways that people have typically handled this dilemma of chapter 7, verse 14. I'm going to give them to you. The first would be your typical Jewish, fa- Jewish way of handling this text. And the, the Jew would say that the word Alma there refers to a virgin, and it, and it can. It refers to a young lady who is of, uh, of physical maturity enough to have children. She is virgin. She's unmarried. And so the Jew would say, or one way of handling this is to say it has no messianic implications whatsoever. What Isaiah is describing is this. A young woman in his day who was unmarried at the time that he spoke these words, that God is saying, take a young woman today who is unmarried. By the time she is able to get married, to conceive a child, give birth to that child, and raise him to the year, two years old, I will have already dealt with this. So at three years at the most, God is saying, I'm going to have dealt with this issue. So that the virgin then refers to not Mary and not anybody future, but a young woman in Isaiah's day who eventually would get married and bear a child. 
And before that child is two years old, God will have dealt with that. You get that? 714? Alright? There's a second way of dealing with this, and that is to see it as exclusively messianic. In other words, Isaiah and God are not describing anything going on in Ahaz's day. Isaiah and God are describing exclusively the messianic promise of a coming Messiah. Well, how would that be assigned to Ahaz? Well, they would argue, God is really not giving a sign just to Ahaz, but to all of Ahaz's line. This is messianic in its implications. He is describing here um, a promise made to not just Ahaz, but the entire house of David. It is all of David's house and all of David's covenant, all of his descendants that is being described. And God is saying, Ahaz, you have refused to ask for a sign. All right, you're not going to see a sign in your day, but I'm going to give a sign to the entire lineage of David. And the sign is this, that in the future, a son is going to be born, a Messiah. He will be born of a virgin, and that will be a sign to you that I am going to deliver my people. And Jesus' birth was a deliverance for the people of God, both spiritually and both physically. So some say it's not referring to anything messianic. Some say it is exclusively messianic. And I would propose to you a third option, that is that it is a little bit of a combination of both. In other words... I'll tell you what, all of this is so hard to keep track in this little pea brain of mine. In other words, God is saying this. There is that here is the sign, and there was in Ahaz's day a partial or lesser fulfillment. But what happened in Ahaz's day was not all that was intended by God as the fulfillment of that promise. There was yet to be in the future an even greater fulfillment of that promise. And we see this in Old Testament prophecy quite often where God describes a situation and it has a fulfillment or a or a description pertaining to that event but at the same time there is a much greater way that this is fulfilled psalm 22 right my my bones are out of joint my friends are forsaking me they gamble and cast lots for my clothing what was david describing he was describing in very poetic form things that were happening to him in his day but was that all that david was describing no by the intention of god david was describing something grander something greater his greater son who himself would fulfill that promise in an even greater way. That's what I would argue is happening in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. God has in mind that situation. He is saying to Ahaz, a virgin today will bear a child eventually, but not, not as a virgin she won't conceive, but she will con- the virgin who is today a virgin will conceive a child after she is married through normal relations. She'll conceive a child. That child, before he's two years old, I will have dealt with this problem. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to do it quickly. But the way that Isaiah describes this and the way that God gives this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit cannot possibly have been fully fulfilled in that day because she wasn't a virgin when she conceived, this woman, and it wasn't a miraculous conception that Isaiah was describing in Ahaz's day. But God describes this in such a way that we can look back on it and see, okay, God dealt with it then. There was a lesser fulfillment, but there's something much more majestic and grander that was really in God's mind, and that was a sign. So just as God would deliver his people in Isaiah's day, in Ahaz's day, just as God would miraculously deliver them then, so God is going to miraculously and will deliver his people spiritually and physically through this greater fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That is why when Luke describes the birth narrative of Jesus, he says in chapter 1, verses 31 and 33, Behold, you will conceive and in your womb, and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Because in God's in God's view to Ahaz through Isaiah was not just that a virgin would conceive, but that this would be the son of David, and this would be the promised deliverer. Does that make sense? So it's not just Ahaz's day, it's not just messianic, 
It is an, an overlapping of both that is being described in Isaiah 7.14. So in Genesis 3.15, we get the promise of the coming Messiah who would be of the seed of the woman, not a descendant of Adam. In Isaiah 7.14, we get that promise illuminated to an even greater detail that this one would be virgin-conceived and virgin-born. And that's why Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14 in his gospel. Now turn over to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 real quick. I'm going to read to you just two other verses. And I'm not going to get into all the context of this one, obviously, because I promise you we do this in 50 minutes. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born unto us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I want you to turn over to Isaiah 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips, and he will slay the wicked. And righteousness will be a belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Now chapter 11 describes the Messiah as well. So what do we learn from Isaiah 7, 14, 9, verse 6, and 11, verse 1? This, that Jesus the Messiah would be born a son. They say that was a long ways to go for such an anticlimactic statement as that. You're absolutely right. But now the question before us is this. He is a son, but if he is a son, meaning he has full humanity, in what sense or in what way can we affirm that he is fully God? In other words, if he is God, does that in some way compromise the reality of his humanity? And if he is human, does that in some way mean that he is somehow less than God? In John 8, he said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And he said, before Abraham was, I am, taking the divine title to himself. And what do we see in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 11, verse 1? And 7 verse 14, that this one who was born to us a son is also Emmanuel, God with us. And not only that, but he is the everlasting father or the father of eternity. And he is himself God. So though he is man, he is God at the same time. So now the question, how do these two go together? How are we to understand the Lord Jesus? Because we don't want to be guilty of thinking wrong thoughts about him or having a wrong conception of who he is. Otherwise, we would be guilty of idolatry. So how do we describe the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? And here is, and I'll flesh this out for you, here is the theological description of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is one person, two natures. One person, two natures. Not two persons. He is not multi-personality. He is not schizophrenic. He did not hear voices in his head. There were not two personalities in him combating each other to express themselves. He is one person, one person with two natures. He has a fully divine nature, which is fully God, and he has a fully human nature, which is fully human. Those two natures exist in that one person in perfect harmony, in perfect unity, without mingling together, without, without compromising each other in any way, so that we can say of Jesus that he is fully God, 100% God, and he is at the very same time fully man, 100% humanity. Jesus Christ, the one person, is as much God as the Father is, and He is as much human as you and I are. Do you understand that? 
Two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. So that we can affirm of Christ that all the fullness of God dwells in Him in bodily form. That's Colossians chapter 2. Or that He existed in the form of God and He emptied Himself and took upon Himself human flesh and came here in the, in the appearance as a man, as a man, and humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Or as Hebrews 1 says, that he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. That is his deity. But at the same time, he partook of flesh and blood, like his brethren, was made like us, us in every way, save only sin. He is sinless. So he is human, but he is not sinful humanity. He is sinless humanity. And he is fully God. Fully God and fully man. He is the mighty God, and He is the Son of Mary. Now what does it mean, or how do these two natures come together? Let me give you a bunch of knots. These are the knots. When we say that Jesus is one man with two natures, here's what we do not mean. We do not mean that He laid aside, or parted with, or separated from His divine nature. So existing as God in eternity past, Jesus did not take His his deity or His divinity, and say, okay, I'm going to set this aside. My omniscience, my omnipotence, my omnipresence, my omnibenevolence, all that I am, all these acts of deity which I am infinite in my person, I'm going to set this aside and I'm going to go become man. That's not what he did. We don't mean that he laid aside his divine nature. He maintained his divine nature. He was fully God. He didn't lay it aside. Because if he laid aside his divine nature, then what did he cease to be? He ceased to be God. And God can't cease to be God. That's one of the... It's like the main job description of being God is that you are God and you can't cease being God. You can't become greater or less. He, he was God. So he didn't lay aside his divine nature because God cannot become ungod any more than you and I as men can become God. We can't. It is essential to his nature that he is being. So he didn't lay aside his divine nature. Second, his divine nature was not converted into a human nature as if it went some, through some sort of evolution and sort of transitioned into a human nature, so that he once was divine, and then over the course of time, or through some sort of magical or mystical or divine process, it became merely a human nature. That's not what we mean. Because once again, that would require God to stop being God in order to become man. The scriptures and teach that. Third, it does not mean that he made himself simply appear to be human, like angels took on human form in the Old Testament without actually becoming humans. It doesn't mean that he appeared to be human. That was an ancient Gnostic heresy, uh, docetism, which taught that Jesus merely appeared to be human like angels appeared to be human when they appeared to mankind. Fourth, we do not mean that these two natures united to form something different. So they had a divine nature and a human nature, and they came together and kind of mingled to form something entirely different, like hydrogen and oxygen coming together to form a third element that's neither hydrogen nor oxygen. It forms something different or sodium and chloride coming together to form table salt. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about two distinct elements becoming one and making it something different, so that if you look at Jesus, you say, well, he's not really human, not really divine, kind of a quasi-human divine being of some sort, but sort of the third thing, it's not really us, it's not really God. That's not what we mean. What do we mean? We mean that the eternal Son, without ceasing to be God in any way, stooped and took upon himself a created human nature, and the human and the divine nature were united together in that one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the man Christ Jesus, but he is fully God and he is fully man. Now what happened in the divinity? Let me give you, in the incarnation, let me give you an illustration. I want you to imagine that you're in the market for a new car. So you go down to the local car dealership. And you step onto the showroom floor and you see there this nice brand new car and it's a model that you're interested in. You think, wow, I'd really like to have that. And the, the sun is shining through the big showroom windows there. 
So it's obviously going to be spring or summer when this happens in your imagination because sun doesn't shine this time of the year. So spring or summer. And as you look at the car, it's shining. It's beautiful. It's waxed. It looks like the, the, the paint job is an inch thick on it. It's just the depth of that beauty and the glory and the sun is radiating off. And you think, I would like to take that for a test drive. So you ask if you can take it for a test drive. And the, and the salesman says, sure, take it for a test drive. So you take it out onto the streets, and it's North Idaho, so you don't have to go far before you're off the pavement. And it's spring, as I said, so we've had rain. I know that's hard to imagine, having some rain, but just imagine that that's the case. And you get out there, and the, the roads are filled with ruts and mud. And so you take it off, and you go off through the mud and the ruts, and you're appreciating how this thing handles while it's fishtailing like that. And you want to see how it goes around the corner sideways like this, around the sharp corners real fast because... Living in North Idaho, that's the type of conditions that we drive in for 10 months out of the year. So you need to make sure that this car can do that. And you just cover the thing with mud. And you enjoy this for 30, 45, 50, 60 minutes. And you bring it back up. You drive it right back up onto the showroom floor. And you're covered in mud. You can't even see what the original color was. And you step out of the car. And before you can even hand the car keys to the salesman, he says to you, what have you done with my car? And you say, I haven't taken anything away from your car. I've only added something to it. Now, technically, what you have said is correct, right? Now, listen, the glory, the beauty, the magnificent, magnificence, and the essence of that car are all the same. But something has been added to the car that keeps those qualities from shining through. So you can rightly say that the glory of the car presently is is the same as it was previously. But something has been added to the car that makes it look less when in fact it is more. Now you have the car plus mud. And it looks like it's less, but it's not. You've done nothing to diminish the glory of the car, right? But something has been added to the car that keeps the glory from shining through. That is the incarnation. The eternal Son took upon Himself flesh. He became something He had never been without ever ceasing to be what he had always been. And in taking upon himself flesh, he appeared less, but in fact he was more. But the essence of that car is unchanged. And the essence of his divine nature is unchanged. But united with humanity, it is covered over so that we could not behold, while he walked here amongst us, we could not behold his true nature. The hymn writer says it, says it best. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. You see the Godhead. Veiled in human flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. He is man dwelling with men, never ceasing to be God. So that the eternal Son became something He had never been, the Son of Man, without ever ceasing to be what He had always been, the Son of God. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Listen, Christian, this is your God. This is your God. The Eternal One, the Creator, who is infinite in glory and majesty and value and worth, He took upon Himself human flesh and came and He lived here and He died on a cross to make atonement for sinners. That is the glory of our God. Such a humble God. Self-effacing, not self-glorifying. He came not to do His own will, but the will of the Father who sent Him. He came not to seek His own glory, but the glory of the Father who sent Him. He came to consider the interests of others as better than himself. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, seeking the glory of the Father, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him. That is the God that we worship. Such self-abasing, self-effacing, self-humbling deity as our God. Do you want proof that the Bible is 
divinely inspired and the doctrines of the Christian faith could never be made up. Men would never make up a doctrine like this. This is our God. Now tell me again, you have a right to what? You deserve what? What is it that's below you? What is it that's below me? Anything? What are we? We're nothing. Our eternal God humbled himself and took upon himself human flesh. He was born a son. Unto us is born a son. That is humiliation. And that is sacrifice. And that is the example that you and I are called to emulate. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these stern reminders of your grace and your condescension. You are truly mysterious and glorious. And our mind cannot comprehend who you are fully in all of your essence and glory. You are infinite beyond our ability to comprehend you. But we worship you because you have given us the ability to understand and apprehend at least some of what you are. And our minds and our hearts must rest in this mystery, which is our God in human flesh. And we're thankful that you made yourself known to us in the person of your Son and that he is the exact representation of your nature. We thank you that we can worship you, our blessed and triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the glorious salvation that you've given to us and the way in which you have made yourself known to us. Thank you for being such a humbling, self-effacing, and self-sacrificing God as to seek our good and to redeem a people totally unworthy of your grace. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.